I do want to share with you um, from the New Testament book of Titus. So um, if you can uh, turn there, uh, if you ever want to know where um, Titus is, um, all the T's are together in the New Testament. There you go. That was free. Um, <laughs> but maybe an easier way to say it is uh, page 1737 um, in, in the Bible that's on the, the seat, uh, the book of Titus. Um, I understand that you've finished recently just a series through the Old Testament book of Daniel looking at the you know, character and conviction and integrity and calling necessary to, to really live um, in a culture that feels like it's just against in so many ways what it is that we claim to believe. And I think Titus is very fitting because in many ways it's a New Testament example or extension of some of the same lessons that this man Daniel had to learn in a totally different culture. Here Titus is having to learn the same things. So I just want to kind of give an overview of the book, but really just from these first four verses. Uh, Let me just read them to you now. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, And at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, who was some of you might be familiar with that name, he was a Christian pastor in Germany during World War II, or at least was known during World War II in the 1930s, 1940s, he advanced this idea that the Christian community, what you are a part of even here this morning, Christian community is the best apologetic. The idea that that men and women following Jesus together in the cities and villages and towns, um, doing life together is one of the most compelling evidences of Christianity towards those who do not believe. And it's uh, well known that before his life was actually taken by the Nazis in 1945, he spoke and wrote much about this whole idea that we're called to, to do life together. In fact, his amazing book on it is called life together, as you would. Um, And his work on this is so helpful. It's an incredible book. It's been translated into so many different languages. He's very well known um, to this day. But what is less known, however, is that there was a time when this man, Dietrich, he actually left his community in Germany, and he took up a quiet position here in London. And it was actually during that time that uh, his friend and fellow theologian, a man named Karl Barth, it, it, it actually took a letter of correction from his friend to bring Dietrich back. Let, let me just read this, this to you. His friend Karl wrote this. I truly, Dietrich, cannot do otherwise other than to say to you, get back to your post in Berlin straight away. What is this about going into the wilderness and keeping quiet at the moment when you are needed in Germany? You know as well as I do that every honest man should have his hands fully and making it sharp and clear and solid with the work that God has called us to here. 
Basically, the guy that wrote Life Together bailed on Life Together, and he needed a friend to say, get back and do the work. Think about it. The, the, the man who would write powerfully on this very conviction that you and I, regardless of the storm that we face, were to continue in the work, he himself faced a time where he needed to be reminded of this very thing. And I suppose that you could say that this is what the Apostle Paul does for us in his letters in the New Testament. He reminds us of the convictions that that you and I need to face the cultural storms around us. For just like opposing winds create weather storms, uh, this clash of ideas that surrounds us even today, it creates a, a cultural storm for our lives, competing visions for how you and I are to live, the decisions that we are to make, how we're to live as single or married, how we're to, to work in, in our job. And oftentimes, if you're like me, you just feel yourself being pulled and pushed in, in competing directions. There's a clash of ideas all over um, the cities of this world. And if you and I are honest, there's also competing visions within our own hearts. We struggle. We recognize, okay, I I know I ought to do this, but I I, I really don't want to do this. There's a conflict in our own souls. And so the, the adverts that you see and the messages being communicated to you, they tend to just kind of draw and pressure and pull on that. So my question for you this morning is, which vision for your life is winning? Which vision for your life is winning? You can tell by the way that you're actually living. You can tell by the way you spend your money, by the way that you spend your time, by the the nature of the relationships that, that you have. Your beliefs are revealed in your behavior. We, we can look and we can see. So the Bible says that there's a storm around us and there's also a storm within us. So How do we navigate? How do we learn to steer? So this man named Titus, he found himself leading a community in a cultural storm. This island uh, called Crete was the fourth largest island in the Mediterranean, and it was home to to four major cities that played a, a huge role in creating and spreading culture throughout the ancient world. And when it was conquered by Rome, it was actually made a province. Now, Crete had a mixture of citizens. Some were predominantly pagan, and yet in the midst of that, there was also a significant and strong Jewish community within it, which really um, brought a mixture of ideas about how people should live. And so Paul basically knew that there were two major views clashing with the truth of Jesus, which created a storm. On the one hand, There was the Jewish situation, which downplayed Christ. Yes, I've heard about Jesus. Yes, we've heard about this good news of what, who he is and what he's done, but, but you really need something else. Yes, we've heard about Jesus, but you really need to do five more things. And if you're really going to be saved, and he hints at this, if you just look down at verse 10, verse 10 of chapter one, he says, for there are many rebellious people who engage in useless talk and deceive others. This is especially true of those who insist on circumcision for salvation. The basic idea was it was a a Jesus plus religion. Yes, Jesus is great, but you really need to do five extra things if you're really going to be saved. You've got to tick this box. You've got to do this, this religious act, and then you'll really know if you're saved. 
So on the one hand, there was the Jewish situation that downplayed Christ, but on the other hand, there was the pagan situation which ignored Christ, totally ignored Christ. See, Cretans, and this is if I can just nerd out for a minute, Cretans believed that they were the original Greeks. You know those people who just love to be the original everything? They're like, oh yeah, I heard that album before it was even recorded. Like, I envisioned it in my mind. I was there, or I ate at that restaurant when it was a food truck, and like, you never even, it didn't even have a name. You didn't even know where it was going to be. Like, I ate there. Some people just love the idea of being like the first there, the original. Well, those were the Cretans. They said, oh yes, Greek culture, we were the ones that, that handed you that. We were the original ones. In fact, they claimed that the Olympian gods were, in fact, men and women in Crete who were elevated to the status of deity because of all the good deeds that they did for mankind. And so as a result, if you actually believe that, you become shockingly arrogant. And that's why Paul probably said in verse 12, I love this, Every one of, even one of their own men, a prophet from Crete, has said about them, the people of Crete are all liars, cruel animals, and lazy gluttons. You have to love Paul. Did he say, can he say that? Yes, he said it. It's in the Bible. So there's these two pressures. On the one hand, a situation that downplayed Christ, and on the other hand, a situation that ignored Christ. And in many ways, these are the two pressures that we feel today. Those who insist that they can save themselves and those who insist that they do not need saving. Yes, we live in a different culture today, but it's these same two ideas. Those who insist, they can save themselves. I'm fine regardless of whether whatever weaknesses I have in my life, like I can save myself, or others who just simply think, I don't even need saving at all. There's the religious and the non-religious. There's the legalistic, and then there's the lawless. The same is true today. In fact, one of the early church fathers, his name was Tertullian, he just He said, just as Jesus was crucified between two thieves, so the gospel is ever crucified between these two errors. And so like them, we're on the verge of giving in to the pressure of errors. And Paul is writing because he wants to make sure the truth is heard. And Titus is his man on the ground. And notice that Paul doesn't tell Titus to go outside of his culture, nor does he tell Titus to become like the culture, but to live transformed lives within the culture. In fact, if you go on, maybe even this afternoon, if you just kind of read the rest of this little book, it's only three chapters, you can read it in like 15 minutes, so no pressure, but you should read it. You see Paul's emphasis, you you need to live a certain way. You're a citizen, if your trust is in Christ, you're a citizen of the city of God within the city of man. And so Paul is writing to Titus to empower him, prepare him, instruct him, exhort him, teaching him how to lead within a cultural storm. And this morning, you and I are reading over his shoulder, for though this letter is addressed to him, it looks beyond him to you and I today. And these introductory verses give us just four convictions that I want to talk about for a little while. Four convictions, four matters that must be settled in your heart if you're going to navigate the storm around you, all the pressures that you feel day in, day out, your life, your marriage, your family, there's four convictions that need to be settled, four convictions about who you are, how you live, why you believe, and what you need. So first of all, let's just walk through them as they're in these four 
verses. First of all, you need to have a conviction settled in your heart about who you are. Notice if you've ever read one of Paul's letters, you know that he wastes no time in making very clear to whoever's reading who he believes that he is. He makes very clear to us how he views himself and in doing so teaches you and I how we should view ourselves. Paul says, I am a servant of God. That's how he understood. What are you all about? I'm a servant of God. Servant of God and an apostle. Now, earlier in Paul's life, he had seen himself as a servant, but the form of his service early on in life was actually for himself. He wasn't really serving God. He was serving out of religiosity. He thought that his service and his knowledge that he had in life is being raised in a very kind of predominant Jewish culture. He was learned. He was very intelligent. He was very cultured. But it, his service was meant to actually serve and establish his own identity before God and others. And he was very proud and very arrogant in this pursuit, so much so that early on in his life, he actually became an enemy of the very message that he is now preaching. He had denied his need for the Messiah Jesus. He threatened the church when it was first birthed. Of course, you read about that in the book of Acts. And he even participated in murderous events. But now everything had changed because he had met the risen, living Jesus Christ. And from that moment on, everything changed. He realized that he couldn't save himself, that he needed saving. And so much has changed that now when he refers to himself, he says, I am a servant of God, an apostle. Which is incredible to me for several reasons. Because if you just stop and pause and think this morning that that God would redeem and use such a person should showcase for us his incredible love. That God will not only forgive, but also use a person whose sin in the past was absolutely awful. And I don't know about you, if you can relate to that, but I certainly can. I have no right at all whatsoever to even stand here and teach you the Bible, for my sin was awful. All sin is what keeps us from God. And it is grace and nothing but grace. I love that we sang that song this morning. Don't even remember what it's called, but it had grace all over it. And I was like, (laughs) yes, I'm in grace, London. We're singing about grace. This is so good. It is grace and nothing but grace. And this is a lesson. How he views himself is a lesson for how we ought to view ourselves. You need to know, like Paul, two things, that you are a servant belonging to God. That's the first thing. And I almost wonder this morning if, if you have a pen or your technology, you could just write this down. Like, can you just say, I blank am a servant of God? It's just an incredible statement to make. I'm a a servant of God. He used to serve himself. We all, before Christ, serve ourselves, but he's moved from serving himself to serving God. See, this is an identity statement. You need to know who you are. See, in, in Western culture in general, most cities are telling you, like, express yourself. Right? Ever since Madonna sang it, you know, all those years ago, I'm kind of dating myself right now, you, know, you need to express yourself. But that, then that creates an identity crisis for everyone because then you go, well, who am I? <laughs> and, and then you need, to, you know what you need to do? You're told to express yourself. Then you have identity crisis. Then what do you need to do? You need to go find yourself. And for some strange reason in Western culture today, you could actually go to your boss and say, hey, I need a week off. And they say, well, why? 
They say, I need to find myself. And they're like, oh, yeah, you should take two weeks, you know. <laughs> Go backpacking in Europe or something. Like, we need to find, there's this identity Christ. Like, who am I? You need to know who you are. And Paul begins this letter and he says, I am a servant of God. And my question for you this morning is, can you say this? Can you say, I am a, a servant of God? See, for some of you, this question needs to be settled today. Some of you have never really wrestled with this question before. Others of you, yes, this is settled, but maybe you need some encouragement in that. You need to be reminded. And there might be a few of you who are just on the fence. Well, part of my life serves God. My, my finances serve God, but maybe my relationships don't. Or maybe it's the other way around. Oh, I'm, I'm living a very moral life, but my money, that's mine. That, that serves me. That doesn't serve God. Can you say this this morning? And I've, I've been wrestling with, do, do I consider myself a, as a servant of God? I mean, to be honest, my, my wife and I really struggled with that even this last year when we were praying through, along with other people in our lives, counseling to kind of hand over the church and make this big move and like sell most of our stuff and have our kids like ask all these questions like, why are we doing this? Los Angeles is sunny. Like, what's the deal? <laughs> you know, like what? But my wife and I had to stop and say, like, do our lives belong to us or do they belong to Christ? And that, that's really easy to talk about as Christians. Like, oh, yeah, servant of God, you know, updated my status today, servant, you know. Uh, that, that's really easy to do. It's another thing when you think God is calling you to, to make a big decision in your life, to switch jobs, give money away, break off that relationship you maybe shouldn't be in. Do you know, is this settled in your heart? See, one of the reasons, I just sense for, for some of you that you, you feel tossed to and fro, back and forth in, in the current circumstance of your life is because this, this issue is not yet settled. You want to keep all your options open. But remember, God has made you. He has redeemed you. We, we, we are twice his. And scripture clearly says, life is no longer your own. And so now you and I, we must live like it. Before there's public service, there must be private devotion. And if you refuse this, then you're actually going to be a stumbling block to the work that this community, that Grace London is trying to do, because you're divided in your own heart. So my question for you is, is this settled in your heart? You're a servant belonging to God. And then there's a second identity statement, the second part of the conviction about who you are, and that is to be a sent one commissioned by God. You're a servant belonging to God and a sent one commissioned by God, which is what the word apostle means. Now, there is ascension which Paul had an authoritative position 2,000 years ago. Yes, absolutely. But in another way, this is true of many of us. We're, we're to be apostolic. We're to be those who understand ourselves as being sent by God. We have a, a mission in life. Our new status in relation to God that we belong to him brings us a new mission to foster and further faith. Notice how Paul understands himself. A servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Why? For the sake of the faith, verse one, of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. I want to foster and further faith in my community. I am sent by God, not only as an individual, but as a community. Grace London, you are sent by God. You have a mission. And true humility is not about denying your gifts 
or your abilities or the resources you have. True humility is recognizing that you need to use them for something greater than yourself. Because whatever job you're in, whatever stage of life you're in, school you're in, it's, it's all about something so much bigger than yourself. It is God's mission. I want to foster and further faith. And notice he says knowledge and faith. And some of us think, wait, do those go together? Yes, they do. See, some people think that faith is this whole idea of blind faith. I mean, for a lot of people around us, that's exactly what they think faith is, that we just take this leap in the dark. We know absolutely nothing. But notice here that Paul mentions knowledge and faith, and the two go hand in hand. Far from being incompatible, they are inseparable. And here's why I think that's important, because God never calls us to blind faith. God moves, he acts, he reveals himself in our world, and it's in response to that knowledge that we then take that step of faith. It's in responding to knowing who God is that we trust him and that we follow him. Now, what will that look like? Well, if the first conviction is about who you are, servant belonging to God, a sent one commissioned by God, then that leads to the second conviction that needs to be settled in your heart. If you're to face the storm around you, and that is the conviction about how to live. Notice he goes on to talk about godliness, end of verse one. It's this this faith, what we believe, it accords with godliness. As you and I know, our behavior is the expression of our belief. I mean, what you really believe is revealed in the way that you live. I mean, if you were to follow me around for like a week, 24 hours a day, that'd be super creepy. Don't do it. But if you were, you would know what's important to me, wouldn't you? Like how I spend my money, how I spend my time, how I treat my wife, how I treat my my daughters. You would get an inside perspective as to what really mattered to me because the way that you behave expresses what you truly believe. And that can lead to a powerful influence in your community and in this city. And so Paul is telling you and I to embrace the truth and the change that it brings in your life. In other words, if you really believe this, it's going to show. It's going to lead to this transformation. And he refers to this transformation as godliness. It's a test of your authenticity. If you truly believe this, it's going to lead to a new activity. So you and I are to live lives that accord with godliness. Now, that word, I I, I don't know what you think of when you think of the word godliness. Like, some of you may have been around, you know, men and women in your life who were like very religious and maybe very angry, and so you think, oh, wow, they're godly. Like, they're super angry. They must be really godly. You know, others of you, you know, maybe they're just those super perfect people who like never have problems, which they really do. They just don't talk about them. But have you ever met... People like that, maybe in the church, like, how are you doing? Blessed. <laughs> really? It's kind of a tough week, I heard. No, nope, just blessed. You know? Like, really? Don't struggle with anything, you know, anything like the Psalms? Like, no, nope, just blessed. And you're like, oh, wow, you must be really godly. I mean, I don't know what you think of when you think of, of godly. Maybe it's a very arrogant person. I don't know. But here's what's interesting is that word, godliness, was actually a word used by the pagan culture. Like the average citizens of Crete, they they were familiar with that word. It was a word commonly used in ancient culture to show that you lived in accordance with what you believe. So if you believed in many gods and goddesses in the Greco-Roman society, if you lived in that way, they would say, oh, you're really godly because you actually live in light of what you believe. 
And so Paul is taking that word and he's attaching it to Christian faith, showing us that godliness is not some kind of abstract standard that people make up. And I think this is important to point out because some people in the Christian church, they think godliness equals their own opinion. They're like, wow, I don't really like the way you're dressing. And uh, since my opinion is right, that means that um, that must be godliness. And so therefore you're not godly. Like some people have a tendency to sanctify their own opinion. Like I think this is the way things should be. Therefore it must be godly. And I'm going to measure your godliness in accordance with my own opinion. But that's not true. Godliness is not some abstract standard that people make up, nor is godliness some unattainable goal of sinless perfection. No, godliness is about reflecting the God who loves you. Godliness is about reflecting the very character of God. When you say to someone like, I'm not going to lie to you, why? It's because God doesn't lie. When you say, I'm not going to steal from you, why? Because God doesn't steal. I'm not going to be unfaithful to you. Why? Because God is not unfaithful. See, godliness is about reflecting the God who knows you, the God who loves you. Godliness, and and make no mistake, godliness does not bring about the grace of God in your life. The grace of God brings about godliness. It's because of what God's done. It's because of his love towards you that you then take on his character and you reflect him. Godliness is the fruit of the gospel in your life. And far from making godly living optional, it actually makes it essential. It's the very evidence that you believe this stuff, that you have embraced grace, is that you are showing godliness. See, some people in the church, they think grace minimizes holy living. They think, oh, if you talk about grace too much, people aren't going to want to be holy anymore. Like, you, you, you got to give them legalism. You got to get up there and be like, I don't know if you're saved unless you like, you know, live like this this week and create some doubt and use guilt and fear and shame and all that. They're afraid that if you talk about grace too much, people aren't going to live godly lives. But listen, the gospel of grace does not minimize godliness. It motivates godliness. It's like amazing, like God loves me and he he saved me and he wants to use me and this is an incredible thing and this is what pushes me to, to not run away from God but to run towards him and I want to reflect him. I want nothing more than, than my daughters who are now in the very formative years, especially as my daughter, my 11-year-old daughter. Oh my goodness. So <laughs> can I just go here for a second? So when, when we moved here, she went straight into year seven. And, you know, so I find myself, you know, in the States, we have school broken up. There's elementary school and then there's middle school, which is where parents usually have like their panic attack of two years before you get prepared for high school. But as I'm walking my daughter to her school on the first day, I see these like 16-year-olds and 17-year-olds, and I'm like, <laughs> like, I can't do this. Like, you know, let's go home. I, you know, we'll, we'll figure out another education option for, for you. But I know that the years are coming, and there's not too many when she's going to leave the house and go to university and do her thing. And my greatest desire for her is that she would actually reach out beyond me, that she would actually know the God who has saved me, that her life would be shaped by grace. And that's why my, my wife and I, when we want to think of how we run our home, like I want it to reflect God. I want her to think of God when, when, when she thinks of how our home runs and why we have all these, these people over to our house, um, which my kids are like, why are we having all these people over right now? I'm like, we're trying to plan a church. She's like, well, let's stop. I'm like, no, no, this is a good thing. <laughs> 
I want them to know that we're trying to to reflect God and it's not motivated by our own sense of self-importance, but by God's grace. Godliness, friends, is a willingness to have your life shaped by who God is, which is why ungodliness is a problem. Look at what Paul says in verse 16. Speaking of a particular group of people, he says these frightening words. They claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. It's heavy that there would be people in a church community that claim to know God, but if you look at their life, they're denying him. There's not that, that evidence. We're not talking about perfection. I know there's some Christians that run around saying, like, I've arrived, I'm perfect. And usually those people never have interactions with any other humans during the week except a Sunday morning. They think, oh, I've arrived. No, 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 I'm not talking about this kind of perfection, but just the evidence of grace in your life. And I suppose Paul's point is this, is if you believe in this message of grace, are you modeling it? Is there fruit in your life? Godliness is showing to others that you belong to God. It's about living life the way God has intended, and it's something that that we need to grow in, absolutely. But I suppose the question for you and I is, yes, we're never going to get to that point until we breathe our last and stand before Jesus Christ that we're ever going to arrive. But my question is this, are you aware of your need to grow? Am I aware that I need to grow in, in godliness? Is it even, is it even on my, my radar? Because we act according to what we believe. And the truth is everybody believes something. And that leads to this third conviction, why you believe. See, Paul's giving us these convictions about who you are, how you live, and thirdly, why you believe. And Paul here tells us why he believes. Look at verse two and three. He says, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. Why do we believe in this thing called eternal life? Are we, are we insane? Are we just mad? Why is it that we believe? What is this based upon? Can it be trusted? Is this hope that we're talking about as a Christian community, is it even reliable? And he gives three reasons why. The first is that God promised it. Why do we believe in eternal life? God promised it. It's rooted in his very character. If you read through the Bible again and again, God is constantly, he's promising, he's, promising. He's saying, I'm going to do this. I'm going to redeem. I'm going to renew. I'm going to restore. I'm going to forgive. I'm going to make people new. I'm going to cleanse you. I'm going to give you power. I'm going to give you a new identity that is unshakable. I'm going to make you new. God's promising over and over and over and over and over again. And along with those promises is communicating his trustworthiness, reminding us that that all biblical hope rests on the nature and promise of God. Before we ever existed, God made a promise. It's not like you came into the world and he's like, wow, well, in light of how amazing you are, I'm going to make a promise to you. No, he made a promise before you ever came in the world, which I don't know about you, is good news because it's not like God was impressed when he saw my life. He made a promise. And Paul says, why do we believe? <laughs> why do we believe in this thing called eternal life? God promised it. Secondly, God never lies. God never lies. And here, and I love this, Paul is actually, in doing this, he's actually critiquing the chaotic Cretan culture. Say that fast five times. (laughs) 
He's critiquing the culture, and he does this by tapping into these, this language and these concepts that, that shaped Cretan culture in that day. Because the predominant storyline was that the Cretans, their, their god of choice was this god named Zeus. They actually believed Zeus came out of Crete. And though Zeus was known for, for courage and for honor, if you brush up on your Greco-Roman mythology, it turns out that Zeus actually lied in order to have sexual relations. So think about the way that that shapes a society. If the gods you worship, if the thing that you ultimately value gives you permission to lie, then everybody's going to lie, which is why Paul says Cretans are liars. They're taking on the character of what they worship. And, and so Paul, is, is, he's deliberately going against that, saying, hey, I know in this culture it's okay to lie, but let me tell you about this God. He never lies. He's being very countercultural. He's being very subversive. The God who, who never lies, which is good news. Because in that culture, just like our culture today, there's, there's so many promises made to us that can never deliver. They can never deliver. But Paul is saying this God, he promised and he will never lie. God can be trusted absolutely, absolutely and not only will God never lie, not never, he will never lie, but having done and said what is true, he will never change from it. Which is encouraging to me because day in, day out of the Christian life, there's times when you feel like God has lied to you. I mean, it's just, we can go there for a moment. Like there's times when I feel like, God, I don't understand why this is happening. I don't understand why these certain things aren't, aren't coming to pass. I don't understand it. And in some ways, emotionally, you just feel like, like a lie has taken place. But if I'm really honest, some of those promises I made up in my head, I didn't find them in God's word. And I've found this to be the case in many conversations I've had with men and women over the years. Someone will come up and say, well, I'm bitter against God. Why? Because God didn't come through for me. Have you ever heard someone say that? God didn't come through for me. And my first question is, okay, in what way did God not come through for you? And they say, well, you know, I think God promised to give me like insane amount of money every single day and it didn't happen. I'm like, oh, wow. You're like, in which verse did, did you um, find that in? And see, listen, God will always break a promise he never made. <laughs> He'll always break a promise he never made. And so it's important that when we think about God's promises that we think very biblically about them. We don't just make them up in our head and hold God to some random standard, but that we are men and women who look in his word and say, if God has promised it, that's where I'm going to build my life, on the promises that he has made, knowing that he has made them, that he has never lied. And thirdly there, he says, God will bring his promise to pass. God has revealed, God has manifested this. How the word brought to light is the gospel. That's what he's talking about in verse three, showing us that Christianity is a revealed religion. God has broken into time and space and he has acted in a way that can be heard and known and experienced today. The message of the gospel is rooted in God's faithfulness. This isn't about you and I like groping in the darkness trying to discover something. It's about God who is light coming into our darkness and lifting us up and saving us and renewing us. God's word is not written on the sand only to have some wave come up and wash it away. It is true and it does not change showing us that the good news that we carry is actually the good news that carries us. This very message that we've been entrusted with is the one that gives us that, that enabling power. 
which leads to the fourth and last conviction before we just pray and respond to this. And it's a conviction about what you really need, who you are, how you live, why you believe, and what you really need. And Paul concludes this little introduction, which really summarizes the whole letter in verse four by saying, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. In the midst of all the challenges that you face, I don't know what your perceived need is, but what Paul makes clear is what you and I truly need, and this is a conviction that needs to be settled in your heart, is I need grace and I need peace. These are two central blessings of the gospel in verse four. They're the foundation for incredible unity, even among uh, you and I, the way that we relate to one another as a community. And just as a father desires to bless a son, so Paul, in speaking to Titus as a spiritual son, reminds us of, of these blessings that we have, grace and peace. And I just want us to meditate on these for a few moments as we get ready to pray and to just really soak that in. Grace, as many of you know, the unmerited favor of God. It's the reason that you and I have the blessings that we enjoy. God's grace that that redeems us from our past. God's grace that that relieves us from all of our striving. I mean, especially in in, in places like, like London and the great cities of the world, our longing for recognition and accomplishment is, be honest, is driving so much of what we do. You're not just building a career, you're building an identity at your work. And so often we just want to hand in our CV or our resume to God, like, look at what I've done, entrepreneurial startup, it's kind of amazing, solving world hunger all in 2016. (laughs) See, so often it's more than just a job, it's an identity. We're like, this is us, we long for recognition and accomplishment, but all of that striving, it fades under the reality of grace when you realize that everything you have has been given to you by nothing but grace. Listen, friends, God does not bless us because he owes us. God blesses us because he loves us. God is in no way under our debt. It's not as if you and I can say today, like, God, I've been smashing it in my spiritual life, so, like, where's my stuff? Okay? Like, it's already April, okay? It's a little late in the year. Like, we can, you and I can never say that everything you have is grace and nothing but grace, and then there is peace which summarizes the experience of what God has given to us. We're at peace with God. This grace melts our heart. I deserve nothing, and yet God has given me everything. Incredible. And then I have this, this peace that even in the midst of the storm, I know that, that I belong to God, that peace has been made because of what Jesus Christ has done, and therefore we can pursue peace with one another. And I just want us to, to see that these words are not empty I love intros, by the way, in the New Testament. They're the ones that we just like, yeah, whatever, Paul and Apostle, let's get to the good stuff. No, 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 this is the good stuff. It's so good. These are not empty words. They're full of meaning and they're alive with hope and they're countercultural and they're subversive and they're encouraging. And, And he shows that by saying at the very end, he uses this title, that men and women in Greco-Roman society would have been very familiar with, Savior. They would have thought Caesar was Savior or that Zeus or some of the other gods or goddesses was Savior. And Paul says, God is Savior. God is our Savior. He's the one who rescues. He's the one that helps. And Paul takes this word very deliberately and he applies it to God. I mean, even the Jewish community, they would have been familiar with the phrase, God, our Savior, but Paul extends this title. He drops a theological bomb, as it were, 
and he extends this title of God our Savior to Jesus Christ. And so to the one side, the pagans who didn't think they need saving, Paul says, here's your Savior, Jesus Christ. And to the Jews who recognize, yes, God is a Savior, he says, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the one who has done it for you. Reminding us that God's saving activity doesn't come through us, it comes to us in Jesus Christ. The source of grace, the source of peace is Jesus. God's work in Jesus presents the life-changing possibility for every one of us. And this helps us navigate the storms, pulling at us between people who don't think they need saving and those who think they can save themselves and even against our own attitudes and our own soul when we get into those modes of operation where we say, oh, I don't really need saving right now. God, thank you for what you did in the past, but I've got it now. You don't. You need grace. Or people who don't think they need it all, yes, you do. See, in the midst of this storm, Paul undercuts every belief system and says, Jesus is Savior, who saves us from the ultimate chaos of sin and death by taking our guilt, taking our shame upon himself, which is precisely what he did when he went to the cross. And he rose again to give us that new hope. And I know Easter was a few weeks away, but traditionally, historically, the Christian calendar celebrate this time called... Eastertide, which I love because what did Jesus do after his triumphant resurrection before he ascended into heaven and sent the Holy Spirit? You know what he did? He gathered his friends together and prepared them for mission. I love that. He, he gathered his friends together and says, guys, let's get together and I want to prepare you for mission. And that's, that's what you do every time you gather. The Holy Spirit preparing you for mission, what you need, and that is grace and that is peace. The relationship that he gives you, gives you the only status you need, the power you need, the authority you need. It's all found in relationship with Jesus Christ. And it's just a a reminder for you and I to continue to trust in that grace and in that peace that helps you to weather any storm because Jesus Christ is our captain, Holy Scripture is our compass, and the Holy Spirit is the wind in our sails helping us to face no matter what life brings your way no matter what the city brings your way or relationships. And so I just end where Paul began. Do you belong to God? Is this settled in your heart? Can you say this is all built on the grace and peace of God? Is this settled for you? May that be the question that's just brought to bear on our hearts by the Holy Spirit right now. I just feel like that's the question that he wants to leave with. Is this settled for you? Some of you are resisting wrestling against it, but right now the Spirit of God just says, just surrender and you will find freedom. Let's pray together. Father, as best I know how, as best we know how, we just say that we do not have it together. We cannot save ourselves and we do need saving. Not only saving from past sin, but even saving from present patterns of behavior or ways of thinking that are just going away, Lord. Some of the compromise that maybe we've allowed into our hearts and minds. Maybe it just seems that you're putting your finger on particular areas of our lives where we have not brought them into service to you. And so we just say, God, 
though our nature is to resist you, your grace causes us to run towards you right now. Jesus, you have given us everything. May we hold nothing back. We feel the tension of people pulling at us left and right. But the greatest thing we could ever do right now is simply say, we're yours. We belong to you. Would your grace make us servants? And may we bring all that we have in service to you because you first loved us, because you served us by taking our guilt and our shame and rising again for us. Spirit of God, would you move right now? Melt our hearts so that we would be able to say, we're yours, God. Our life is no longer our own. Would you do that now? Maybe even a person or two in this room has never done that before. Right now, would this be the moment where they say, God, save me, not because of what I've done, but because of what you have done. You are mighty to save. Would you do that even now, God? In Christ's name, amen.